The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Powell. Outrageous fortune, Sione's wedding, Shortland Street, whale rider. These enormous hits that are part of the cultural fabric of Aotearoa can all trace back to today's guest on the show. They came about in large part thanks to the work, organisation, connections made and championing from a man named John Barnett. Over a career that's taken him from having an independent production company before there was much of an independent industry to speak of, through to managing Fred Dagg, creating best-selling albums, bringing us the Foot Rot Flats movies then moving into South Pacific Pictures, which was state-owned by TVNZ, but not for long, as he led a management buyout. And South Pacific Pictures has played an amazing role in building our creative industries. Long-running hits like Shortland Street, Outrageous Fortune, or Mighty Johnson's and Westside have created a base for the industry of professionalism, ability to gain experience, and great pay while living and working in the arts. John Barnett stepped back from South Pacific Pictures a few years ago, but is still involved in helping bring our stories to the screens. To talk on his career, on telling some of New Zealand's most important and loved stories, and on the entrepreneur's journey, John Barnett joins us now. Good morning. Hey, thanks so much for being along. It's a pleasure. Tell me about that journey into the entertainment industry. So having come from media and uh, design, and then into uh, Fred Dagg's career, and you know, the, the time that you were with them, um, best-selling records, huge tours, you know, a yeah. real massive cultural force in the country. Yeah, yeah. Well, John was absolutely um, the biggest thing in the country. And it's funny when you look back uh, now, if you look at a year of television, uh, John appeared about less than one hour in that whole time. He'd do these three-minute bits. He'd pop up and down. He did a half-hour show. But he wasn't overexposed on television. He did radio shows. And he did the Fred Day Careers Advisory Bureau on radio. We had a lot of fun. I mean, some of the things I learned an awful lot on that. You know, I remember we did these, um, uh, we did performances at the Ace of Clubs, which was a a, a club in Auckland, a, a kind of supper club. And Phil Warren, who went on to be the deputy mayor of Auckland, ran this club for a long, long time. And he said to me, "What sort of deal do you want?" I said, "I want a percentage of the door." I'll never forget. Phil said. Well, that's all right. He said, normally I keep two sets of books, but with you, I like you boys, so there'll only be one set of books. So <laughs> you learned a whole lot of things that you hadn't, hadn't thought about. And uh, um, anyway, some friends of mine uh, who were creative 
um, were bridling at their uh, prospects at what was called the NZBC. And there was going to be changes in television. And um, Tony Isaacs and Michael Noonan had come up with an idea of New Zealand drama, of which there'd hardly been any, uh, and a kids' drama set around the Commonwealth Games uh, in Christchurch in 74. So we went in as an independent group, which we called Endeavour Productions, actually, um, and we pitched it to TVNZ, and we got a, or the BCNZ, and we got a fixed-price contract, and they went off and shot the first drama series on location, um, six half hours for $96,000, which is less than an episode of Shortland Street, I mean. But uh, it was um, it was a lot of fun, and then they said, oh, we didn't think you'd make it on budget, and we actually think we gave you too much money. But anyway, we sold it in a couple of countries, and I thought, this is, this is great. But then the world changed, and TV1 and TV2 got set up, and they didn't want to do independent production. They, they wanted to have all the production go in-house. Um, so... Then the options were to do things like make movies. So we took um, a picture that Jeff Murphy had made uh, for television called The Wild Man and made a short with John Clark, which was about 30 minutes long, uh, called Dag Day Afternoon, which we started shooting one day, uh, one Monday in Wellington and finished in Auckland on Friday and made it up as we went along and we went into the cinema. And, you know, it was fantastic. We enjoyed it. It was great. And I thought that's what I want to do. And so having had these kind of successes that were very entrepreneurial and very out on your own and kind of stitching things together, what led you to go into uh, what what became South Pacific Pictures that was part of uh, the the NZBC, TVNZ kind of system? Well, during the 80s, uh, first of all, there was a period in the 80s where there was a lot of money for movies. And so... Um, you know, I made quite a few international films, uh, Footrock Flats as well, um, which I'll come back to. Mm. But um, there was a lot of money. And then suddenly government sources recognised that possibly because it was tax driven that uh, things could get out of hand. And so they put a stop to it and they gave a period of two years to, to phase out. Now, after that two year period, a lot of people went out of production but I looked at um, the distribution of independent films and uh, it, most of the films that came into the country were studio-based pictures. So, you know, Warner's, Fox and MGM all had their own offices, but independent films weren't coming in. So together with some people out of uh, Australia, I set up a, an independent distribution company and we also looked at exhibition possibilities. So I started bringing in those and um, continued a little bit with with films. That was driven as much as anything by the Footrot Flats experience. Um, With Footrot Flats, you know, Murray Ball had created this fantastic cartoon and it played in 120 papers across Australia and New Zealand. And I don't know that people in New Zealand were conscious of how much it had been adopted in Australia. And in fact, everywhere outside Sydney and Melbourne, it was really very, very strong. Murray had wasn't sure if he wanted to make a feature film, and Pat Cox, who was had been a, um, a commercials producer, approached me and said, "You know, I've been thinking about this, and you know, we've got Tom Scott on board to write the Scott uh, the script with Murray, and would you come on board?" And I um, went off and did some research, and I found that 
95% of people in Australia had heard of Footrop Flats and, you know, all that. So I said, yep, we'll do it. Now, the Film Commission at the time um, had a view that this was not a film. You know, it didn't have actors um, walking around a stage. Uh, and so they refused to put a dollar into it, um, not one dollar. So I went to Faye Richwhite and said, because you could could get a tax break going in on this film, um, could you raise the money? We raised $5 million in 5,000 lots. Um, independent Newspapers, which is the, was owned by Murdoch and uh, um, was, was run in Wellington um, to a sense independently, they were the publishers of much of Murray's work. So they put up a, a 20% of the budget, 25% of the budget, and the rest all came from private investors. And I asked the commission if they'd like to t- take a $5,000 share, but they didn't even do that. Anyway, the picture, um, I, I had no doubt that it was going to work. And um, the picture opened here and, you know, stormed to the top of the box office. And in fact, again, the exhibitor had not thought that it was going to do that well. And they had to hold back Clint Eastwood movies and all those sort of things over Christmas. The the whole thing with the music, you know, I knew that we had to have somebody iconic. And I went to Dave and said, we've got to have a soundtrack. And um, we worked pretty hard to get Slice of Heaven. There were a couple of other tracks that were suggested before that. But when Slice of Heaven came in, um, I loved that track. Now, you know, you, know you, can't, you can't write what happens around you, but it's a very interesting time. What you had on, on television was um, a pop show where music clips were played. The record companies decided for a moment that they wanted to be paid for those clips. Mm. Television New Zealand, TV One, said, we're not going to pay anybody for these. So the music disappeared off television. So I looked at the we, – we went into I, – I had a plan. We went into studio and we shot Herbs and Dave doing their thing. You know, you know, it took us about two hours to shoot that. Um, and, uh, and it was a lot of fun and there were dancers and, you know, people having a good time. <laughs> and we made that into the trailer. And we started – and I took it around the radio stations and people said, no one will play this. It's hopeless, you know. I said, okay, give it a week or two. And we put it in the cinemas because at this point also when you're making animation, you, you do all the drawing first, then you do the voices, then you put the thing together. It's not like live action. So we didn't actually have a film that we could cut into a trailer. We had some silent bits that we could put in, but otherwise we had Slice of Heaven. So we played Slice of Heaven um, in the cinemas. And the interesting thing is if we'd been on Ready to Roll or a music show, we'd have been up against things like Peter Gabriel and you know, some really big productions, and we mightn't have looked as good. In the cinema, this is the only thing you saw. And people came out of it going, da, 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 da. you know, and in a week or two, it started to chart. Yeah, and, uh, and did that make it feel more adult as well? Than abso- a, that than was a, the than idea. Cartoon. That yeah, was absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. the idea, to go with an adult track. And we, we started that 12 weeks before cinema release. So by the time the picture opened, there wasn't anybody who didn't know, <laughs> know about it. And it was, it was absolutely huge. So then I took it to Australia and I said to Hoyts, you know, we've done this. And they said, oh, I don't know, don't know about the trailer. Nobody wants to watch a bunch of Maoris dancing around in the studio. And I said, well, <laughs> take it away and think about it overnight. They came back and they said, it's pretty good. It's pretty catchy. Okay, we'll give it a go. And we think it'll do about $400,000. I said, no, it's going to take a lot more than that. 
They said, well, we're not sure because we're just not sure. So that's what we'll commit to. So I said to them, well, you know, your normal deal is around 30%. You get your prints and advertising back. I'll let you do it for, I'll put up all the prints and advertising and you can do it for 10%. And they said, okay, well, the picture took four and a half million. It was the fourth biggest picture in Australia in that year. And we did exactly the same thing. Three months before release, we started Slice of Heaven in the cinemas and, you know, rest is history. And 35 years later, that song is still an anthem. And the song and the film still provide revenue every year. You know, I mean, that's what you've got to create. I, I despaired of New Zealand filmmakers who thought that the important thing was to have a premiere. What it is, is to create something that creates revenue on and on and on and on. And that's what Foot Rough Lads did. And becomes part of the cultural landscape as Very well. Very much, like, yeah. um, You know, what a remarkable uh, combination. And, and yeah, this is probably a good, good point to ask, you know, like, what is it that a producer does? Because, it, you know, one description I've seen that I, that I love is a producer does whatever it takes. And hearing that story of Foot Rock Flats, um, you know, whether it's going and meeting Faye Richpite at the time, you know, the most high profile wealthy people in the country or, you know, heading straight in and talking to the owners of the, the, the exhibitors or talking to the, um, you, you know, organising the music rights yourself. It's such a multifaceted job that touches everything. Well, it does. I mean, I must say New Zealand was a smaller place. Again, you know, Fay Rich White, yes, they had that status, but I knew Michael from university, you know, when he, he was studying to be a lawyer. And so, you know, that, was, that wasn't hard to go in there. And they were always, they, they, they got in a few of our films and, uh, uh, and we had a lot of fun in those, at, at that. And the, the exhibitors, you know, they're looking for product. Yeah. So they're interested in having a conversation with you. And if it doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't go anywhere. But they've got to keep talking. They know that was that was their business. But so what does a producer do? Well, when it came to an animated film, I mean, you know, I couldn't draw a straight line and I couldn't sing a note. So I wasn't going to be sitting around telling anybody what to do. Um, Pat Cox uh, was, because of his commercials experience uh, and also quite a bit of music experience, um, Pat had... Uh, technical knowledge of how that worked. We set up a studio in Sydney. We couldn't get in, you couldn't get animation done on that scale here. Took two years of of um, employing a workforce in Sydney, and um, you know you just you 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 have to be across everything. But the things that you don't know about, you don't tell people. You know you don't interfere with the with the creative process. When the um, artist who drew all the backgrounds first started on it, he hadn't come to New Zealand. And so he drew what were clearly Australian landscapes. Clearly what we had to do, first thing, fly him to Gisborne, mm. go and live on Murray's farm for a week, then it looks like New Zealand. So it, 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 there's a lot of people involved and it's about creating an environment where everybody's going to contribute their best. And, you know, you have to be, you have to be involved all the time and know what's going on so that you've got – and thinking about what happens if that happens, what's my backup plan? And uh, and I think that that's, that's true of any business it, at all, you know. It, it's such an interesting um, endeavour as well because each operation, each episode, each project is like a mini business. It's got a budget. It's got kind of a team that's put yep. together. It's got an outcome. It's got – it's been pitched for. Uh, but also it's got that marriage of um, – 
having to have an idea that you know, you know a creative thing, a thing that really will resonate with people and yeah. they'll they'll love, and then also having to have a business because you can't you you know the ideas will die if they aren't properly funded. Well, and if the business doesn't work, then yeah, nothing will ever happen. Well, that's true, and that's true. I think of any business, and I think that the first question that I ask about any film or any television, and and the same is true. It doesn't matter whether you're in the you know, making all birds or, or, or rocket lab, who's the audience? Who's the customer? Because if you can't identify that customer, you, it might be a terrific idea. We all read great books and think, that'll make a film. But actually, who's going to go and see it? Mm. So, and more particularly with a film, my question that I always ask is, who's the audience on day one? Who are the people who are going to be there the very first time that you promote this picture? Because... They're the people who are going to talk to other people, and that still that still works all the time, and and I'm really I'm I'm very very conscious of that, and I think that um, that's a big driver. I see, as I say, I see lots and lots of projects, and I read scripts, and I think these people have written a lovely story, but I do not know anybody. Don't have to know them. I can't think of anybody. Who's going to go and see this? Now, in the increased or the the much much more diverse television landscape, where you've got um, free to air going through its um, issues at the moment, you've got pay, and then you've got the streaming services. You've now got different kinds of places that some some projects will be better for free to air. Some projects will be better. Sorry, will be better for a streamer. I mean, if you look at one of um, South Pacific's success is, is Brokenwood. And in fact, Brokenwood began uh, at a conversation with Channel 9 in Sydney when um, my partners in the business owned the distribution rights for um, Midsummer Murders. And they tried to, they wanted Midsummer Murders, which they couldn't have because the ABC had. So um, I said, we can make something that's like that. And we created Brokenwood, which was then set in a um, Vineyard not in Victoria, and then the the creative people at Nine changed, and they said no, we want more urban contemporary stuff. So I brought it back here, and we set it in West Auckland. And when you look at Brokenwood, which is enormously successful, no, I'm not just using a hype, but in France on free to air, it plays when it plays, it it wins its time slot at eight thirty on free to air in France. It plays in Germany, it plays in Canada, it plays in America, it plays everywhere around the world. And it's the kind of story that a free-to-air audience really goes for. But if you put it up against Ray Donovan, you know, the Ray Donovan audience thinks, oh, this is a bit slow. You know, he hasn't got any of the violent sex and, and, um, uh, and pacing. It's different. But for a free-to-air audience, it's terrific. So you have to think about who is your audience and you have to tailor that. And I, I see an awful lot of New Zealand projects who say, oh, I'm going to sell it to Netflix. Netflix is spending $6 billion a year, but you know, don't you think that every single producer in the world is looking at them and they have the choice of every single producer in the world? So the first thing they do is go to the people like, um, you know, that, that create shows that, that are already hits. Mm. And, um, <clears throat> but it is this whole thing, as I say, whatever the business is, who is your audience? Who's your buyer? And keeping in touch with them, and and never looking down on them, and never taking them for granted. And as long as you do that, 
you you know you you've got a fair shot at resonating. And I think there are projects that you make. You know, we made a film, an adaptation of a Woody Hamara film uh, book uh, called um, film was called White Lies. We knew that the audience was limited, but it was successful because it reached the audience that we that we looked for. It doesn't mean every film has to be bail rider or or, or, or wilder people. You should, should we chat about the whale rider story yep. there? Which, you know, whale rider is an amazing story where there was such a long gestation with that movie between you falling in love with the idea of it being a story yep. and then everything coming together that you could tell it in the way that mattered. Tell, tell me about that journey. Well, um, somewhere around 1987, when I was uh, nowhere near South, when South Pacific Pictures didn't exist, uh, and I was an independent producer, um, Liddy Holloway, uh, who's Joel Tobek's mother, was interested in um, adapting it. And she said to me, read this. And um, I read it. And I was immediately struck by a number of things that were universal, not just insular of of New Zealand, which is how we look at a whole lot of things. Now, you know, people say you have to have a great pitch. Um, when we we went through several writers, we thought about directors. Keisha wasn't born at that point. Uh, Nikki hadn't started film school. Um, you know, you you've got to have patience. You've got to be persistent, but you have to have you have to have passion. You have to have patience, and you have to have persistence. And I kept. Kept playing with it and kept playing with it and kept playing with it. And I didn't want it to be a story that was about Murray, but only for Murray. It had to be wider. And the pitch we came up with was one that really resonated. So it goes like this. Uh, for a thousand years, these people lived in a village by the edge of the sea. In every generation, the chief has a son who becomes the chief. Cut to the present, the chief has a daughter. People said, I get that. Uh, it's in New Zealand. No, 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 but I get it. It's actually in a Maori tribe. That's cool. I understand that. And it doesn't matter where you go in the world. People understood what that was about. So, you know, that kind of gives you the confidence to go on. And, and once I'd asked Nikki to get involved, um, and what happened was that Nikki had made a film uh, and we'd made um, – uh, what what becomes of the brokenhearted, and uh, we were in the same kind of awards thing, and you know we were a much bigger film, and her film was was got recognised, but it was harder. And I said to her, you know, would you be interested in this? And she looked at it and she said, I'd love it. And then she came and worked on one of South Pacific's um, soapy uh, productions for a while, and got into because she hadn't worked in in kind of fast turnaround. But um, you know, the team of people that made that were absolutely fantastic. I mean, and here's the thing. I didn't go on location on that shoot apart from one day because we were actually shooting five other different things. And you have to keep an eye on everything. So I'd look at the rushes, but it wasn't there. There wasn't much point in me standing around saying, oh, I think he should get in the canoe now. Um, but we thought, we, you know, we had 60% of the money came from France and Germany and uh, the rest from New Zealand. And I don't think people thought that this was going to be a big hit. And then we had a foreign sales agent who was really good, who a couple of weeks before um, the first market said, we're out of the foreign sales agency business. So um, that meant that we had a bit of a problem, but we put it in for um, 
uh, festivals. We put it in for Sundance and um, uh, and we got selected and then we got a new foreign sales agent and then we won. And we weren't there because we had to come back for the New Zealand premiere. Oh, sorry, it was Toronto. Toronto, yeah. We weren't there because actually, although I'd taken a number of people up there associated with the film, we didn't know we were, we didn't think we were going to win. We couldn't afford to stay there the whole of the, the festival. But they, but we knew we were onto something because suddenly they were they were um, scheduling more screenings, and one of the Toronto critics, a woman named B. Ruby Rich, had written the most fabulous um, review of the film, and people went to it, and you know <laughs> there it was. And Sundance was the same. We went and we won, but we went there. <laughs> but you know, it was <laughs> it was terrific, and uh, it's still. You know, I know people find this hard to believe. It is the most successful New Zealand film, um, film about New Zealand, New Zealand film uh, that's ever been made. It took 41 million US worldwide. Uh, in the year it was released internationally, 2003, it was the second most successful independent film in the world after Lost in Translation. Um, so, you know, I'm really proud of it. And I think that it was, it became a calling card for so many people. There's Nikki shooting Milan at the moment, you know, a $100 million-plus picture with a 1,000 people working on it. There's Keisha seen all over the place. And and there's a view about about New Zealand. I mean, certainly Peter Jackson has created a view about New Zealand, but there's a view about New Zealand identity. And as I say, that identity is about is about universal things. And so whether you were in South Africa and you were talking with a white Af- white South African audience or a coloured South African audience or a black South African audience, or whether you were in Korea or Israel or, or France, everybody got the story. So, you know, that's, that's yeah, success. And, and really interesting that the, the story had the universal themes but also was so true to honouring what was particularly Māori about it and particularly local. Well, I think the more specific you make it, the stronger the story um, resonates with people. Because if you made, at one point in, in, in its development, um, an American studio said to me, well, we like this story, but, you know, could you introduce, like, a school teacher who comes to the town and, you know, and tells her about her potential? And we said, no, you know, this is the story. And as I say, the specificity of the, of the, of the culture and the setting and the people was what made it so, yeah. you know, so strong. And 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 that, I think that resonates wherever wherever you are. I mean, when we go and watch foreign films, in particular, actually, when we watch a whole lot of studio films, you know, you watch a film like La La Land. It's about the environment that they're talking about. You know, you watch a film, Pretty Woman. It's about what happened in that place in that time. And although we're you know, a lot of people are dismissive of studio pictures. They're actually telling stories about the place, time and people. And that's what entertainment is. And film had been, you know, the dominant medium for telling really big, exciting, important yeah. stories. Uh, but in, you know, in the world in general and in New Zealand, uh, things that you put through through South Pacific, like Outrageous Fortune, were at the very beginning of the move from television uh, being kind of you know the, the the poor cousin of movies to being the place where some of the most interesting and deep and real storytelling um, was being done yeah. tell me tell me about like the journey of putting something like outrageous fortune 
into television, uh, it, it felt like it really just came out of nowhere in terms of how New Zealand it was, how funny it was, and how kind of up to date it was. Well, again, um, you know, an enormous success story, and it rests on the shoulders of uh, creatives. And it also uh, there was a there was a moment in time where TV Three, who were the broadcaster and commissioner, were um, they were very scrappy in the sense that you know it was harder for them to make a living than it was for TV One and Two, and so they were prepared to take risk. And um, Kelly Martin, who now runs South Pacific, was the head of programming there. And she liked the anarchic nature of it. And she liked the thought that it could go anywhere. And I don't think, and no disrespect to the people at TVNZ, but I think it would have been a harder sell to a TVNZ audience. And whereas TV3 had was fighting for any audience, so let's go somewhere that's different. Now, you know, it was created by um, James Griffin and Rachel Lang. And um, I think that even when it started... They had, they had views about where it might go and aspirations, but we were completely surprised by um, the way the, the speed with which people took it up. In the first season, the numbers were good and it had a bit of chat. It actually took to about the third season where suddenly it took off and you know redefined everything. So it's a combination of factors. You know, it's not. Um, I I I can't take the credit. For that, it's the creatives. It was the network who was brave enough to go with it. It was New Zealand on air who wanted to do it, and you know, New Zealand on air has been such a cornerstone of the industry. And and there's a difference between New Zealand on air and the Film Commission. New Zealand on air is interested in outputs. Who's the audience? Will they watch it? New Zealand Film Commission is quite often interested in the inputs. You know, is it being told by these people? Are those people represented? Is this a story that does so-and-so? The the output nature of New Zealand on air means that hardly anything it makes doesn't get seen, or put the other way, everything that it gets made, that, that, it, that it funds gets seen. And, you know, New Zealand on air are responsible for Shortland Street, whatever you say, because Ruth Harley said when she got into that job, um, we need a soap, we need a five-day-a-week show because what it will do is, first of all, it will say to a New Zealand audience, we can tell our stories here and it will give them confidence about that and then it will be a training ground. And at the time they put out, I think they're called an RFP, they weren't in those days, it was just a, we, we're going to give some money to a soap. And I wasn't at South Pacific. And she said to me, I've got a request from, I've got a, pro- a proposal from TVNZ and a, and a proposal from TV3. What do you think I should do? In a kind of offhand, casual conversation. I said, have you got enough money to pay for both? And she said, for a period of time. I said, make them both and see what the audience says. And TV3 made a show called Homeward Bound, which was a one-hour-a-week a show, and Shorten Street was made by TVNZ with the help of Grundy's, or Fremantle, who'd made Home and Away. And, oh, oh, actually, no, they made Neighbours. Mm. So, um, you know, it went to air, it opened enormously and it fell for six months. The ratings just fell and fell and fell and fell. And the network was worried. And then about six months in, people began <laughs> to, to accept the characters and recognise that this is part of us. And it started to turn. And that's you know, 20, 
yeah. some five years, 26 years later, you know. So And, and Shortland Street and um, Outrageous Fortune and, you know, Almighty Johnson's West Side, these things that are kind of synonymous with, um, with South Pacific pictures uh, are also kind of this like bedrock of the industry because it isn't just kind of yeah. – the, the audience becoming used to New Zealand versions of things. No. It's also the the whole um, infrastructure, people becoming professional, people being able to yep. to learn the craft of being a director and every kind of technical role, uh, people having like acting jobs that mean that they can have middle class lives. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and that kind of bedrock of the industry, um, you, you know, fr- from my perspective of having seen people go through and, um, and, and grow because of those roles, uh, it, it's been so, um, yeah, yes, yeah, so important in changing the, the cultural landscape here. Oh, I, I definitely, and I, I, it's hard to find a writer who hasn't been through a Shortland Street school. But you know, also when you look at something like Outrageous, ABC US made an adaptation. We did a deal with them; they made an adaptation. It didn't work because they weren't prepared to make it gritty enough. Uh, ITV made an adaptation. But they didn't make it gritty enough. So, you know, people looked at these things and thought they were great ideas. There was a lot of talk about Almighty Johnson's. Almighty Johnson's could have been set in any country in the world. But once you set it in a New Zealand sense where people have got gods but actually, well, I'm not really sure if I am and I'm not sure if I can actually make the thing fly or not, other people don't have that kind of approach to things. And James brought something there that was quite unique and people loved it and it goes, you know, Everywhere, so um, you know that volume, that sheer continuity of production makes for makes for an industry. And in the case of South Pacific, the bedrock of Shortland Street, five nights a week, fifty you know in production, fifty weeks a year, put, creates a dynamic. And that's why um, when I was I, I went to work for South Pacific, they asked me to come in uh, as chief executive, and um, I looked at it, and at the time. It, it was a subsidiary of TVNZ along with a whole lot of other companies like National uh, Natural History and the National Film Unit and things that were pimples on the bum of, of a company that had to generate $400 million worth of advertising. So they didn't get resource and they didn't get any of those things. And I said, look, I think you know we need to do this a bit better. And I wrote in um, a clause saying that if it's ever offered, I want to buy it. Now... Julian Mounter came in and he agreed that that businesses like Natural History and National Film Unit South Pacific should be sold. And at that point, they really wanted to tear that agreement up and go to the market. But in the end, um, you know, I bought it with a UK partner. And one of the terms that I put in the in the purchase contract was they had to con- they had to commit to seven years minimum of Shortland Street, and that meant that we were, you know, definitely in business and there to stay. Um, so, you know, it's been it's been a whole lot of fun. And that idea of like building the industry and and having that continuity and and getting those um, big long form TV productions was that always part of the plan of South Pacific Picture? Did you see the move from um, you know individual movies that might take ten years to get to fruition, and then see that actually there could be a lot more storytelling and a lot more audience finding in constant long-form television. Absolutely, absolutely. And also, I had a view which is not shared by um, a lot of companies, and it may be a resource view, but I had a view that a good idea could come from anywhere. And so I would encourage um, 
anybody to send an idea in. And every single idea, and about 300 a year, would find their way across the, the door. And everyone would be assessed and everyone would be responded. Now, out of those, we might option six or eight a year, but we wrote back to everybody and told them, you know, this isn't for us, or we couldn't afford that, or we've got something similar, or whatever. But they all got replied to. And there was, I can remember one guy who sent in 10 ideas, and they all got rejected. And I said, you know, do you want to keep this up? You're the only people who ever reply to me. Anyway, but, <laughs> but you know, a good idea can come from anywhere. And it's about your ability to, to shape that and think about an audience. And, um, and I think you have to be, when you become the dominant company or the largest company in the, in the industry, you have a social responsibility as well. Mm-hmm. You've got to make sure that everything works in the industry, that there is a proper infrastructure, that there are other places that you, you where you can source um, personnel and, and resource. And, you know, you can't be insular about this. You well, know? Even down to things like um, you guys were known as really good payers, which yeah. is a funny thing in an industry that's, that's so often feast or famine. Oh, you have to. Look, you know, the people that come to work for you, freelancers, they, they you know, that's how they live. Mm. You never, you know, always pay people on time. If you can, you can pay them ahead. But you, you have to, you know, never leave a bad debt around. It's, it, it, it does you no good at all. What things, you, you know, are you, um, you know, looking back on the change in the industry from there not really being an independent television industry to now kind of um, local and international film uh, and, and television storytelling being a really big part of our kind of cultural and international export identity? You know, what, what kind of things, um, are, are you surprised that, that we got there over that time or <laughs> would, you, would you have picked it? I wouldn't have picked it yeah. because I, I think that um, much as um, I had an aspiration for, you know, making a big company, and in fact South Pacific would have been, if it, if you looked at its numbers against Australia, it would have been about the third biggest company and actually would have been in the top ten in the UK. But, you know, could you have anticipated that these things have led where they've gone? No. And Peter Jackson made enormous um, uh, changes, you know, he's responsible for a whole lot of that change because he had total confidence in his ability to step from um, bad taste into in Lord of the Rings. But you, you, you were one of his early champions, weren't you? I was. I distributed bad taste and we couldn't, get, again, couldn't get it into a cinema in normal time. So we put it on at 10 o'clock at night and got money in cinema. They hadn't, they hadn't been done before. Um, I, I think that the um, there's no question that it is part of what shapes um, New Zealand today. And when you look at, for instance, the Air, the Air New Zealand uh, in-flight things, which have been discussed a bit, but, <laughs> but you know, they talk about the, these aspects of New Zealand. And, and I think that we've changed the way that the, that the world looks at us. And recently there's been criticism of the um, film rebates and Treasury say, well, we think that the money should have gone to uh, tourism and tourism could have promoted the country, and we we don't need the film industry. And my answer to that is, um, you know, when you think about particularly about Rings and Hobbit, and about Whale Rider, where would tourism have spent their money? I mean, Hobbiton wouldn't exist. So would people have gone to Matamata if they'd spent? You know, no disrespect to Matamata, there's nothing there to go and see. You know, would they have gone on a um, a trail of the of the East Cape to see? The, the locations of Whale Rider. No, you know, what we do is we we build, we, we change the DNA and we make 
for a whole group of people, and particularly, I think, for Māori and Polynesian, out of film, out of drama, out of um, dance, and out of music, we've opened up possibility. And, you know, if you say to somebody, or if someone says, I'm going to be a musician and make a fortune, well, you know, you hope that they're going to have an income stream. But the truth is, people dream. And one of the mantras that I had at South Pacific was um, turning dreams into drama. And, uh, you know, the fact that you can um, transform ideas into something that resonates with people is one of the most satisfying things that you can do, you know, and you and a whole lot of people come on the journey with you. And, and to do it in a popular way, because you mentioned their um, Pacifica and Māori stories and yep. things like Whale Rider, you know, huge, huge hit and Sione's Wedding, you know, a huge uh, story and a, and a huge hit as well. And then, you know, back, back to things like Outrageous Fortune or Football yep. Flats that have such a kind of like uniquely local kind of thing. But, but popular and unashamedly popular as well, not special interests, not well, round the edges. No, I mean, Sione's Wedding was interesting because... Uh, you know, I, I'd always been uh, a fan of the Naked Samoans and um, and I got close to them. And I I went to Pacifica, as I normally do, and I remember coming back from Pacifica and there were 180,000 people there. And the Herald had like a half a column coverage in a picture. You could go and a I, long time reading I, the Herald and not know it was the biggest Pacific <laughs> Island city in the time, world. Yeah. The, certainly. And I, I came to the office and I said to James... We get get Oscar. We've got to make a film about this. And I said, and what how it starts is I don't know what the story is yet, but I know that it starts on a really really wide shot. No, it starts on a interior shot of a group of Samoan guys, the naked Samoans. And as you pull back and 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 you, you, you realise you're in a city and that this this is a group that's that that's a vital part of this city. But you're actually, you know, you're part of the whole world. The opening shot was the other way around, started big and went in. But anyway, they went away and, and shot that. And again, there was never any doubt in my mind that that there was an audience for that. I had um, um, the producers of Superman, uh, Richard Donner and uh, his, Lauren Shuler Donner, his wife, they called up and they said, that's the only wedding's fantastic. We'd like to do a remake set in Boston, because we've got the same thing. You've got a bunch of Italian kids who live at home with their mums and the priest tells them what to do and they're badly behaved. And so for a while we had a conversation about it, didn't come to anything. But, you know, again, a universal theme. It specifically Pacific, if that's hard to get your tongue around, but absolutely universal. And so people, people loved it. And uh, I think, you know, that's... As I say, beats working making those things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's talk about some of those collaborations because you know you've you've had really long and productive relationships with great people um, like James Griffin and Rachel Lang, who talked about writers across a lot of those big South Pacific things, and, and also you know the, the, those big names and the like. How important is it as a as a producer or as a person who's bringing cult, you know cultural products to the screen? How important are those relationships with the talent, and what's allowed you to kind of find nurture and, um, you, you know, have really positive outcomes with these great relationships? Um, well, I think that when you uh, come across people like that and, uh, and you can offer them the possibility of doing something and they respond in the way that they do, it's important to reward them well. 
it's important to ensure that they are participants in the success um, and it's important to listen to their voice all the time. And, you know, I, I people were well rewarded. You know, I used to often say that I think the best paid people here are the writers. That's fine. Because as long as they're doing that, everybody else is employed. So it, it is about, um, uh, it's not about, you know, you can't, you don't want to undermine them. You don't want to, um, you don't want to second guess them. You know, if if I've got, Something to add in a creative sense, I'll say it. Um, and if they look at me and raise an eyebrow, I'll say it's fine. Okay, it's not. I'm not. I'm not writing this. You are, but I. But I do think that you do want to when you've got talent. You you know you want to keep it. And when I was running South Pacific, there would be an event that we'd put on for all the people who we used who were writers, and there'd be often a hundred people there. And so you're always trying to you're trying to nurture new talent. You're trying to bring people through, but you know that you've got your stars, and you and those stars can walk in any time of any day and say, "I've got an idea, and this is this is how I see it unfold." And you know you you, you want to spend the time of the day to to work that out. And once you get behind something, man, you you're the champion for it. You're the guy that's got to go out. The woman, the guy, you've got to go out and sell it to people and you have to believe in what in in those people so the relationship is really really important what advice do you give to young people or, or people looking to start out of uh, of any age of course um, and, and move into kind of um, bringing ideas to audiences what advice do you give people well firstly keep your eyes open because there's stuff all over the place that's you know good and the stuff that isn't so good interestingly in the film business, Nearly every film that I've made, certainly every film that's been successful, has been an adaptation of some kind or another, whether it was middle-aged spread of stage play, beyond reasonable doubt, you know, a book and a case, uh, even Sioni's Wedding in the sense that The Naked Submarines existed, Whale Rider, um, My Wedding and Other Secrets. Roseanne uh, Liang made this documentary about her life as a Chinese woman falling in love with a European guy. Now, in New Zealand... That doesn't seem to be very odd, but in lots of parts of the world, this is a difficulty, not just Chinese, but once you go cross-cultural, cross-religion, it's a problem. I saw that film, the documentary, and I went straight to her and said, that's a feature film, let's make it. And um, so, but, so my point was that I was, I'm looking at, at real events and I'm looking at things that exist for, for film. But I, so I say, keep your eyes open and passion, patience and persistence. And think about who the audience is. Think about who the customer is going to be. Who's going to buy the product? Because, as I say, we've all got, you know, most people have got a great, oh, I've got a great idea. Yep, who's going to buy it? How do you know they're going to be there? And that's, yeah. And having had, you know, a, a lot of successes and also I imagine a lot of things that didn't go exactly to plan or, you know, ideas that you love that didn't get, get made or get through, how do you define success and what's your the kind of version of being successful? Well, I think success is, uh, particularly in the film and television business, is when, you, when the idea has been resolved and you see an audience there, that's, that's successful. And there are certainly things that didn't work. And certainly, but, you know, I, I also tend, you don't forget them, but you move on. It's like whatever the project is, you're going to run into a whole lot of people that say no. And... Never, ever hold a grudge against them. I mean, maybe they're doing something else. Maybe they had a bad day. 
mate, whatever the reason is. They said no. The only person that you think about is the person that says yes. It doesn't matter. I mean, I, hundreds of people said no to Whale Rider. Only took one or two people to say yes to make it happen. And so why would I bear, bear a grudge against the word? I can't remember the names of the people that said no because, you know, why would I carry a grudge about that? I'm, I'm sure I did business with them later. But, but just think about the, you know, as I say, forget the fear of failure and think about the potential for success. And on a personal level, like, you know, what, what are the things that you're most proud of and what do you define as uh, success, um, you, you know, in and, and, and your life as well? Well, I think that, <laughs> and this sounds a bit wanky, but the body of work is really, you know, you've talked about, about how it's had an impact on New Zealand, about the way we see ourselves and about the way the rest of the world sees us. And I, I take a quiet pride in in that because um, it's you know it, it really you, you know you can't walk around with your head in the clouds but that's that's happened and I also take um, enormous pride I'm involved in quite a few you know charitable and and uh, public service sort of things and I don't make a big noise about those but when you see somebody succeed at something that you've been able to be a part of, that is that's the most fantastic success that you can have. Yeah, that's magic and, and probably very similar to a lot of the pathways that you've opened up for so many people who have gone on to have, you know, extraordinary creative careers. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's so cool. Well, thank you so much for coming okay. and, and talking to us today, John Barnett. Uh film industry um powerhouse and uh, and good bloke thanks so much for coming in thank you it's been fun cheers thanks so much tina tiller for producing and thank you very much for having us along in your ears today thank you you've been listening to business is boring presented by simon pound and brought to you by the spin-off and callahan innovation From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.